Thank you, Mike, and good morning, church. Good to see you on this Lord's Day on this Palm Sunday. If you're a guest today, again, we welcome you. So glad that you've chosen to worship with us. And because there's nothing like orienting your hearts around what's most important, especially as we have heard today, we have begun Holy Week, the most remarkable week in all of human history. <clears throat> if you come to church on Palm Sunday and then return on Easter Sunday, let me tell you, you miss a lot because there is a rhythm to this week that we really do want to encourage you to deeply enter into and participate in. So as you have heard, we look forward to seeing you this coming Thursday and Friday. And then as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus on Easter Sunday. Today is April 2nd of 2023 and God is on his throne today and all of God's people said, amen. Let me pray once again, Father in heaven now as we invite you into this moment to open your word to us. You are the speaker of scripture. For the words of the Bible come from you. They are not of human origin. They are not of man's creation. But in them, Father, you have spoken your very essence, your very being, so that we would know who you are, so that we would know your son, and that we could listen to him. And when he speaks, the dead new life receive. And so, Father, now would you stand in my body and speak through my mouth? Think with my mind. Communicate the essence of who you are to all that we hail today. We love you. And speak, Father, for your servants are listening. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. The 115 words that comprise what we recently recited a moment ago, the Apostles' Creed, so-called not because the apostles wrote it, but because the apostles' creed succinctly states what the apostles preached, first appeared in the early part of the second century. And Christians have been confessing their faith by use of the apostles' creed now for over 1,900 years. How many billions upon billions of times has this creed been recited by Christians in worship on Sunday mornings. The word creed, don't let that stumble you, simply means belief. And so the Apostles' Creed is for us a rule of faith. And this year during, <clears throat> during Holy Week, in continuing through the Sunday after Easter, we are going to use the themes that are found in the third stanza of the Apostles' Creed as a basis for a series of messages. We're calling this series, This We Believe. And in a time of great uncertainty and confusion, how important it is for us as Christians to declare it, to declare what it is that we believe and what we stand upon. Again, the third stanza, which we have already recited this morning, says, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. That third stanza, as you see, begins, I believe in the Holy Spirit. And so it is clear that the Apostles' Creed is, is wonderfully Trinitarian in its structure. I believe in God the Father Almighty. 
I believe in Jesus Christ, his son, our Lord. That third paragraph, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Trinitarian Orthodoxy confesses faith in one God who exists in three persons, again, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so when we profess, I believe in the Holy Spirit, we are stating together that we believe that the Holy Spirit is a divine, means he's God, personal and distinct person within the Godhead. So the Holy Spirit is a person who is co-equal with the Father and the Son. And the word holy refers not only to his character, but also as we've emphasized his deity. The Holy Spirit is God. He is not a force or an influence. He is a person who who possesses all of the qualities of personhood. The central point, or if you will, the primary job description of the Holy Spirit is to do what we have done already this morning, and that is to give all the glory and praise to Jesus. The Holy Spirit is Jesus' agent. In John chapter 16, verse 14, Jesus put it simply, he will glorify me. That's why he came. That's why the Holy Spirit was given. He will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. That's a remarkable statement because the Holy Spirit is self-effacing. His aim is to turn the spotlight fully on Jesus Christ so that he is always urging us to go to Jesus and to see Jesus and to be like Jesus. The role of the Holy Spirit is to magnify the Son. And so he reveals the Holy, Jesus to us, the Holy Spirit does. He unites us to Jesus by faith. He regenerates us and he transforms us into the very image of Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, which is one of my favorite verses in the New Testament, says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. To say, I believe in the Holy Spirit means that, that by him, I not only believe in Jesus, but I experience and also have fellowship with him. It means that the Holy Spirit indwells us and he leads us. It means that he is the author of our assurance that we are in Christ and Christ is in us. Obviously, I cannot talk all about who the Holy Spirit is and everything he does in a single message, but what I want to do with you this morning is invite you to look at one of the most profound things I think Jesus said about the Holy Spirit. Let me invite you to take your Bibles and go with me, if you will, to John chapter 7. The seventh chapter of the Gospel of John during the Feast of Tabernacles, which really is the context of all of John chapter 7, Jesus made an extraordinary statement about himself, but then also followed by a commentary of John on the Holy Spirit. John chapter 7, the words will also appear on your screen, but it's always good for you to have your Bibles open, says this in verse 37, on the last day of the feast... As we'll see, that's the Feast of Tabernacles, the great day. Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. 
Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now here's John's commentary. Now this he said about the spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And this is God's holy and inspired word to us. And all of God's people said, the Feast of Tabernacles was one of the big three Jewish feasts. There were more, but the top three, the most popular were Tabernacles, Pentecost, and Passover. And on this Palm Sunday, I want us to look at the stunning invitation Jesus offered at the Feast of Tabernacles because it so wonderfully and beautifully captures the fulfillment towards which all of Holy Week points. The Feast of Tabernacles was a spectacular event. Among the seven feasts the Israelites observed, it was the final and the most joyful of them all. After all of the crops had been harvested and brought in, it was time to celebrate. And the feast lasted for seven days, during which the people lived in temporary shelters or huts to commemorate the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness by their ancient Israelites. The saddest day for the folks who gathered during the feast would be when they would have to end their long week of camping. You know how that is when you go away for a week and you camp out. Oh, you got to go back home. You got to go back to work. And so it was for them the the last day was both a sad day, but it was a memorable day. Let me just interject that at first, Jesus told his family that he would not be traveling to the feast for this particular occasion. But then interestingly, he later made the trip quietly and did so without any fanfare. And upon arrival, he began to preach. And upon hearing him, the people were astounded, many of them beginning to wonder if he might be the Messiah. Others were impressed by the miracles that Jesus performed, and still others wanted him arrested because they thought him to be a pretender. But at a specific moment during the feast, Jesus did and said something that was so dramatic and so very powerful. During each day of the feast, there was conducted by the priest, primarily the high priest, a water pouring ceremony. And the priest would enter through the temple, through one of the gates around the temple, fittingly, in this case, called the water gate. Three blasts of a shofar horn, a ram's horn, would be blown. And then the priest would draw water from the pool of Siloam and then capture it into a golden pitcher. And then he would walk to the altar at the temple. And he would be followed by a large crowd, and, and they would be waving a braid of myrtle tree and willow tree and palm branches as the ceremony was unfolding. Palms, like the kinds of palms that we would wave on Palm Sunday, were a regular part of, of Jewish festivals, like the Feast of Tabernacles. There is also another interesting connection between the Feast of Tabernacles and Palm Sunday, for the psalm that they would chant during the water ceremony was Psalm 118, which says, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then on the last day of the feast that 
John draws attention to in verse 37, what he calls the great day. The priest would circle the altar in the temple seven times. On the sixth time around the altar, he would be joined by another priest who would be carrying a flask of wine, and then together they would ascend the ramp that leads up to the altar, and then as they would raise the, the urn of water in the flask of wine, the crowd would begin to shout, raise it higher, raise it higher. It is said that the high point for many Jewish people was to see the pitcher and the flask being raised up. And then they would pour the water into separate bowls. They did so because that water ceremony looked back again to the wilderness wanderings. And to that time when Moses struck the rock and a stream of water flowed out, it also looked forward to the messianic age when a stream of water would, as the prophets say, flow throughout the entire earth. That's the context. That's the precise moment. During the ceremony when Jesus, standing among the crowd, cried out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Oh, I wish somehow we could all go back to that moment as best as you can. I want you to go back to that moment in your imagination and feel the force of it. Talk about high drama. Jesus was always the master of every moment, and, and he chose this precise moment to offer this amazing invitation so that with impeccable timing and with the ability to hit the perfect note, Jesus was saying in the midst of a throng of people, this feast is about me. I am the fulfillment of all that this feast represents. It was an unusual thing for Jesus to cry out as he did. Matthew chapter 12, verse 19 said, he will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. But here, Jesus did the exception. He did the unusual thing. He cried out with a loud voice. Why did he do it? Because as impressive as the water ceremony was conducted during the Feast of Tabernacles, after all of the chanting was over and after they packed up their tents and, and returned to their homes, Jesus knew that as they went back to their homes, they would still be thirsty and their deepest needs would still be left unsatisfied. And he knew that every Jew could return to the Feast of Tabernacles every October for every year for the rest of their life, but they would still return home thirsty. And so he pleads with them on this occasion, even as he pleads with us today to come and to drink. Only Jesus Christ can provide the water that satisfies the human soul. Thirst is something for people who lived in the desert, uh, they knew something about it. They knew what it was like to be so thirsty that you thought you were going to die. We have the convenience today of being able to run to the faucet and get as much water as we want anytime we want it. Some of you buy these large crates of water so you can carry that plastic bottle with you everywhere you go. Thirst, though, is evident, and it is evident everywhere. The shooter who stormed her way into Covenant Presbyterian School this past week in Nashville, 
was dying of thirst. The person who self-medicates with alcohol every night just in order to go to sleep is dying of thirst. The person who works themselves to death because they simply want enough money to buy more and more of what they want is thirsty. The thirst is not a physical thirst. The thirst is a thirst of the soul. And it is like having a desert inside of you. That's the need that Jesus is speaking of as he opens and cries out at this moment. When your soul tries to live without God, it's thirsty. That's why people move from one relationship to the next. It's why people abandon their marriages. It's why adrenaline junkies are always looking for the next tie. We're always looking for whatever that may be around the corner that will bring us happiness or some kind of temporary fulfillment. The thirst that Jesus is speaking of here in John chapter 7 is universal. Every one of us experiences it. Because there is in the protoplasm that makes us who we are, these little tentacles that are always reaching out for God. And that thirst, that thirst in your soul, I believe, has been put there by God. Augustine said years ago that there is in every single human being a a human-shaped void. That we try to stuff it and satisfy it and fulfill it with other things. But God put it there because only he can fill it. It's the thirst of the human soul. How thirsty are you? How parched is your soul? This thirst is known by many names. Frustration is one. Emptiness, disappointment, discouragement, an agonizing awareness that there must be something more. The prophet Jeremiah charged the people of God in his own day with two crimes against God. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, he said, For my people have committed two evils. One, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And then two, hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. The prophet is saying God was the source for all that they needed. He was, as he says, the fountain of living waters. He was all of what their souls craved, and yet they walked away from who he was and then tried to store their daily needs in jars with holes. How many of you are trying to pour what you think matters in life into a jar that's got no bottom? into a vase that has holes. Jesus tells the thirsty here how to be refreshed. And I love the simplicity of it. Come to me and drink. Be thirsty and come to me and drink. And by the way, just wanting a drink of water is not enough. A shallow thirst only gives you a shallow satisfaction. This is a deep intake of all that Jesus Christ is. I want you to simply notice briefly that this invitation is universal for Jesus said, if anyone. Jesus extends this this invitation to religious people and to happy pagans. 
He extends this invitation to atheists and to agnostics. He invites college professors and students. He invites young and old, poor and rich, those with power and those without it to come. It is an invitation that is universal. Secondly, the invitation is free. The only condition is thirst. And what I love is that the water doesn't cost a thing. And one of the final statements in all of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22, verse 17 says, the spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who desires take the water of life. Read those final two words with me. Without price, it doesn't cost you anything. There's a cost, but the cost was absorbed by Christ. For you to come, you don't have to buy it. You don't have to trade for it. You don't have to bargain for it. It is free. The entrance fee has been paid by the blood of Jesus Christ when he died for you on the cross. You simply have to come to Jesus and drink of him. The invitation is universal. It is free and it is exclusive. We can't run away from the words of Christ who said, come to me, period. If you want to cause some trouble in the world today, if, if you want to become unpopular, tell people that the entrance into heaven is exclusive, that it can only happen one way and through one person. Because that's how narrow but how beautiful truth is. It can only be one way. There aren't 10 there aren't 11. If we had said there are 12 ways to come, we would want 13. But Jesus said there is one, and it is him. So that only Jesus Christ can quench the thirst of your soul. But here's the good news. In the midst of what sometimes the world views as a very unpopular statement, here's the good news for thirsty souls. You come to Christ, and every need in your life will be quenched. You will be fully satisfied by him. So if you have a deep thirst for something more, if your soul is parched, come to Christ, come to Jesus. He is what our souls need. And when we drink of Christ, he satisfies completely. There is no other source of living water. I know sometimes I, I tend to quote C.S. Lewis a little bit too much. But I can't run away from that scene in the silver chair within the Chronicles of Narnia when Aslan the lion, who represents Christ, is having a conversation with Jill. The words appear on the screen because it's such a great narrative section of the silver chair. Are you not thirsty, said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I, could I, would you mind going away a while while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do, to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill. 
I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. <laughs> Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. Well, I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh, dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream. There is no other stream, said the lion. The invitation is universal. It is free. It is exclusive. But it does require action. You must drink. We all must drink. And the drinking is not something you do, though, with your mouth. You do it with your soul. It is something deep within. It's a spiritual act. And you drink from down here. You and I will receive many invitations during our lifetime, dinners, weddings, birthdays, graduations, banquets. This is the greatest invitation of all. There are some invitations where when an RSVP is required, we go, I don't know, honey, should we go? Should we, do we want to? Here is the greatest invitation of all that you cannot decline. Again, there is no entrance fee. There is no charge. Here is the most amazing, stunning invitation of all. Jesus simply says, come to me and drink. And in the invitation, I want you to notice that drinking is believing. Jesus said, whoever believes in me, notice that word believes, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. In John 6, 35, Jesus said earlier, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me and eats will not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. When Jesus says what he says in John 7, Verse 37, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Bible commentators scratch their head and wonder, well, what, ex what verse exactly does he refer to? Because it must refer to some verse in the Old Testament. And there are so many marvelous verses that I think underscore what Jesus says. Let me give you just a couple. Isaiah 55 verse 1 says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Isaiah 58 verse 11 says, And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong, and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. All of those phrases speak to this ever-flowing stream that the Messiah would offer. But then meditate on this promise that comes directly from the words of Christ, out of his heart, out of her heart, will flow rivers of living water, literally out of your very belly. 
That again is as deep as it can go from our inner being. This is where these rivers will flow and the flow is abundant and the flow is ongoing. And it's not just an eight ounce plastic bottle of Polar Springs. It's not that 64 ounce water bottle that you carry around so that you get your recommended daily an ounce or daily required ounces of water. No, 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 it's so much more than that. You get rivers in this case because you get Jesus. And the rivers there is plural. The waters are plural because the moment we believe in Jesus, again, hear me, rivers of living water will flow from within And the river of living water is the Holy Spirit. So everything your dry and thirsty soul needs will flow within you by his spirit because when you come to Jesus, you also get his spirit. Romans chapter 8 Verse 9 says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. The living water is the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is the spirit of Christ. When you have Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. You have him, and he flows. And when you come to Christ and drink, your soul will be satisfied, because when you get Jesus To get Jesus means you get the Spirit, and when you get the Spirit, it means Christ is in you. Can you get any better than that? How do we know Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit? Well, because the Bible tells us explicitly. That's what John's commentary in verse 39 is all about. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. There were dimensions of our fellowship and experience of the Holy Spirit that could only be known not known, until Jesus died and rose again. But when Jesus died, when he rose, when he ascended, the Father and the Son, the Scriptures tell us, sent the Spirit to indwell us. And when Jesus, who was the second person of the Godhead, was in human flesh, when he was incarnated, he was limited to only one place at one time. That's what that self-emptying of Christ in Philippians 2 was all about. He could not be in his human nature everywhere at once. But when he returned to heaven, He sent his spirit so that now he is in all of us. John chapter 14 says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. What does it mean? to say, I believe in the Holy Spirit. It means the Holy Spirit reveals Jesus to us. It means the Holy Spirit nurtures intimacy and fellowship with God in us. It means that he fills us with such a joy that it is like a multitude of rivers that are overflowing and converging in us. To say, I believe in the Holy Spirit means that he supplies us with the strength to say no to temptation every single day. It means the Holy Spirit reshapes our character and our desires so that we think and look and act and speak like Jesus. It means the Holy Spirit sustains us when we pray. It means the Holy Spirit has given to us wonderful gifts by which we can serve God and serve one another. It means that you will never need to search for another source 
of satisfaction. The Holy Spirit fully satisfies. And that satisfaction, notice what the text says, will flow out of us. That means it comes to us because the Holy Spirit indwells us and then it flows out to others. A moment ago I said it's the assurance that we have that we know that Christ is in us and we are in him. He is flowing within us, but notice there is also an outflow so that when the Holy Spirit is flowing and moving in us, people around us are getting wet because he's overflowing, because the stream in you and me is abundant. And when people get near us, they ought to get soaked too. It's something that comes deep from within. There is in you, by the presence of the Holy Spirit, a power and a joy and an intimacy with God that brings unbelievable peace and satisfaction. That's what it means to believe in the Holy Spirit. Friends, God made you. You are of his amazing, special, unique design. But he also knew this. He knew that you would wander away from him, that you would lose your way, that you would try to find satisfaction elsewhere. God knew that deep within you, though, there would be this deep thirst in your soul. So centuries ago, he said that I will send my son I will send my my Messiah, and when he comes, he will stand and will offer to you water to drink. And when you drink it, you will never thirst again. And when Jesus came, and no better moment than here in John chapter 7, he cried out and said, come to me. Come. Drink. Believe and live. Let's pray. And our Holy Father, how how our hearts resonate with the reality of who Christ is. Because many of us who have already confessed faith in Christ for which then the words of both the creed but especially the words of the text echo within us today to say yes I have I have I have drunk therefore I have tasted and I know not just in my head but in my deepest part of who I am that no one satisfies like Christ no one else fills No one else gives joy and peace and power and assurance and relationship with us like Christ. So that when we stand and say, I believe in the Holy Spirit, and how do we know whether or not the Holy Spirit is active and working and declaring and fulfilling what his role is? It's when we can say, Jesus is everything. Jesus ultimately satisfies
Father, not only do I rejoice with those who can profess that, Father, I also want to appeal like Christ did to those this morning here and who are listening to the sound of my voice. If you've never drunk of him before, drink today. And this is, again, not merely an opening of your mouth, but it is an opening of your soul. And take all that Christ is and consume him. Let him come into you. And he will, and he will abide with you and live with you and dwell with you by the presence of the Holy Spirit who is the Spirit and presence of Christ. And you will know and you will experience what we will declare in in coming days. The beauty of forgiveness. The forgiveness of sins. The resurrection of the body. And life everlasting. And so, Father, again, we thank you today that Jesus Christ is the conqueror of our souls. He satisfies us to the deepest level. We love you and we praise you for the gift of your Son, for the gift of your Spirit, for all of what today and these coming days mean. May you be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, let me invite you to stand.